0: This podcast is produced by Unedited. Hello dreamers and welcome to the Dreamer's Disease podcast with myself Alex Manzi and this is the podcast where we're aiming to inspire you to become the best you can possibly be through hearing the stories of inspirational people who are following their passions and dreams because I believe that it's the disease of dreaming and not doing that causes us to live unhappy lives so we try to gain some wisdom and some life lessons from each guest that you can apply to your life and on this week's episode I'm joined by Michelle Ellman who is a body confidence coach, a YouTuber, podcaster, author and an all-round body positivity influencer and she is seriously amazing she has such an inspiring story and we spoke about you know the amount of major surgeries that she went through as a young, young child, how she overcame all of the beliefs that have kind of held her back in her life and she also told the incredible story of when she died in hospital, in the bed, in the hospital at the age of 11. We also spoke about in this conversation the process of writing her book, Am I Ugly? and what she learned from that process, the role ego plays in your life, how you can empower yourself by facing up to fear the abuse she suffered at the hands of a teacher in school, and how she managed to create such a positive output in her life after having such a traumatic childhood. It's a really, really powerful episode. I'm really, really excited for you guys to hear this one. Before we do jump in, though, I just want to thank you for listening. Please do make sure you subscribe to the podcast we're listening to right now. And if you want some daily wisdom and inspiration, then be sure to follow me on Instagram at I am Alex Manzi. But right now... Let's jump straight in and hear Michelle's story. First things first, congratulations on your book, which looks like it's been going down amazingly well. Thank you so Um, much. With probably the best book cover artwork I've ever seen with like the silver (laughs) and the pink writing. It's It's one of those
1: weird ideas you have in a meeting and you're like, can we do this? Can we make it like a mirror? And originally it was just a drawing of a mirror. Yeah. So we're like, wait, let's push this further outside the box and have a reflective cover yeah and um, and then the audiobook just came out yesterday so that's been fun and then the paperback came out about three weeks ago so yeah. it's one of those joys that never ends yeah nice. <laughs> so it, it feels weird because it feels like it's been more than a year and actually it's what well, it came out in july so not even been a year yet
0: wow that's that's amazing.
1: I'm gonna have a new birthday every year. Yeah, yeah, the book, <laughs> book birthday. birthday.
0: <laughs> That's wicked, and I love the idea of the audio because you narrating the audiobook as well.
1: No, there was a bit of a mishap because I decided to get braces three days before oh, we recorded. Wow. So I record the acknowledgements, but I don't actually record okay. the thing. And then the end result, I was like, that was probably the best choice, just because even if it's your own story, the dialogue sounds so much better when it's like. I wouldn't even know how I would do a man's voice or someone with an accent. Yeah. Whereas a professional actor does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So think, it's a small and they can like get that. the range of everything.
0: Yeah. And also, it's like I find if you're not used to reading like stuff in a VO kind of way, like for voiceovers, is it can st- sound a little bit like you're reading it from a script. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: and I also think it's actually quite more is really exhausting when you actually think about sitting down and reading a book out (laughs) loud because what you the last time you would do that or like maybe the only time you would do that is with kids whereas you don't read 300 page books to kids you read like or you read one chapter a night you wouldn't read everything um and so even doing the acknowledgement so it's like I'm actually quite glad I'm not doing this
0: exhausting do you want to let the people who are listening know a little bit about who you are and what you do Yeah, and then we can talk about the book a bit.
1: Cool. So I'm Michelle Elman. I am the creator of the Scar Not Scared campaign. Um, I run the Scar Not Scared Instagram account. I'm a body confidence coach. Um, It's essentially being a life coach, but I specialize in body confidence. Um, And I'm a speaker. I'm an author. Um, And all of this started. The Scar Not Scared campaign started because. I grew up being really insecure about my scars since I've had 15 surgeries from a brain tumour, a punctured intestine, an obstructive bowel, a cyst in my brain and a condition called hydrocephalus. And um, having not spoken about that until I was probably 20, um, it kind of all built up inside of me. And then I had become confident with every other area of my life. And I thought I was to an extent confident about my scars until I qualified as a life coach and my friend said well you want to specialize with body confidence but you don't wear bikinis and it was kind of this weird Oof, that's, stage that's
0: like a real like, yeah <laughs> I have a lot of yeah, friends yeah. in my life like that being
1: like oh really you that's like real home truth? You, that one? <laughs> yeah I don't know if we could swear but like um in terms of like they were like you're just bullshitting yourself is what they would tell me and I was like I'm not it's just you that thing where you have that old mentality and you have these Weird pieces of the puzzle that you hadn't actually slotted in, yeah. and when it came to bikinis, I actually didn't realise that was an normal mindset until yeah. she had brought it to my attention. I was like, "Oh, you're right. Why don't I wear bikinis?" And it's kind of when a belief forms so young, it almost gets formed as a fact, yeah. and so you just don't question it. It's like, "Well, I have scars. Of course, I wear tankinis. Why wouldn't I?" Um, and then as soon as she said that, um, the words "people with scars don't wear bikinis" came out of my mouth. Without me even oh, thinking wow. about it. So yeah. it was kind of, I don't know whether anyone else has had this, but a really young belief almost blurts out your mouth. And you're like, wait, I don't believe this anymore. Yeah. I'm confident. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so we were chatting about it for a bit. And then it was the next day. And at the time, we were traveling around Australia for a month. We were backpacking. Um, And my friend comes running down from the other side of the pool being like Michelle you have to go to the other side of the pool And I was like what why she was like there's a person with a scar I'm like, okay, so she was like, but she's wearing a bikini (laughs) So I was like, okay, let's be that weird person just like subtly walk to the other end of the pool It was the smallest appendicitis scar that you wouldn't have even noticed if we hadn't been having the conversation the day before But it was kind of this thing where because I had been trained in coaching and coaching is very different to traditional therapy of like challenging your mindsets and things like that it was this thing where i was like a year ago i would have been like yeah but it's an appendicitis scar and mine's like 15 massive scars across your stomach um whereas now with this like new coaching mentality i was like let's be honest that's going to be a new like a new excuse i just move further and further away every time Mm. so if i don't address it now i'm never going to address it so what i'd done was made a promise to myself that I was going to wear a bikini that summer. Um, And this was in January because we're in Australia. It was hot. But um, and so I did. That was the summer I launched Scar Not Scared. And the reason why I turned it into something other than just me wearing a bikini was because I had been coaching people for six months at that point. And one of my clients actually a month before was like, "Um, why don't you ever talk about your own story? Because I casually mentioned these surgeries in the middle of the session. And I was like, well, why would I talk about my own story we're here to help you and she mm. was like because it does help me to yeah. know you've been through it so it was kind of, then it, all these pieces of the puzzle kind of came together and i was like wait if i'm gonna do this i might as well like make a thing of it because i didn't even realize that all of this shame around my scars was so embedded in me um but i wanted to keep it separate to my um coaching business so i set it up as this social media campaign mm. And that's kind of where it all started. <laughs> it's amazing.
0: I think that I think the whole journey of it is it's like you said, it's that last piece of the puzzle that's just kind of slotted yeah. in and you just think, Oh, this all makes so much sense now and everything from there just elevates in a way and just yeah. sort of goes you know, it's got you to where you are, you know, now essentially.
1: And now I'm quite spiritual. So like now when I look back on it, I'm like, it's just too good to be a coincidence mm. in terms of the fact that Somehow I made a decision in January that I was going to wear a bikini. Then two weeks later, someone was like one of my friends who's a photographer was like, let's take a photo of it. And then another I had a business coach at the time and she was like, this is never going to work. You shouldn't do it. And like it, that was actually the thing that pushed me to do it. because mm. was like, any time you tell me to not do something, I will do it. Mm. I'm just that really, really stubborn person. Um, and then I got a new business coach who also thought it was a ridiculous idea. And she actually was like, you shouldn't be doing it on um, Instagram, you should be doing it on Facebook, Facebook has more returns, which was like, a thing I didn't really want to do anyway. And then what ended up happening on the actual day was I did launch on Facebook because I was, I was still quite young, very heavily influenced, influenced by business coaches, who, to be honest, in hindsight, weren't very successful in business. So yeah. I was kind of taking advice from people who hadn't been there and done that. Um and What happened with the Facebook thing was that uh, Facebook blocked it for inappropriate um, imagery. Really? And that's why I was out of anger. I went on Instagram and posted
0: it. I mean, same company. So you didn't didn't (laughs) project your anger too far. But but
1: actually, completely different (laughs) platform in terms of the fact that Instagram is a visual campaign. I don't think my photo would have gone viral on Facebook. And if I think about all of that, I'm like things which I saw as roadblocks at the time. Like everyone kept saying like it wasn't gonna work and I remember the day before someone saying I remember my goal, because I set goals with everything I do was ten thousand shares. Mm. And um she was like, Really? You don't want to be a bit more realistic? Like a hundred shares? And I was like, no, ten thousand, we're going for ten thousand post. Uh yeah, and well because it was gonna be the thing that launched it. Yeah. Um ended up getting a hundred thousand shares. No <laughs> so way. Wow. it was I didn't <laughs> underestimate it, but I think it's because I did have the belief that like, this is going to happen. Like yeah. I'm very, um, I really believe in the coaching mentality around, um, believe like it's already, like act as if it's already done. Mm. And that's genuinely what I was like, it's already done. It's going to get a hundred thousand shares, um, 10,000 shares turned into a hundred thousand. But that was kind of what was behind it. And at the time I was like, all of these are roadblocks, like Facebook banning it, like, but if I had not done it on Instagram and the reason why it worked on Instagram was because Instagram had just released that top nine feature, uh, which I yeah. didn't even know how that worked, but it went into the top nine of every single hashtag I used, And at that time, you could use limitless hashtags. Yeah, yeah. So it was just perfect timing.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy. And I think the thing of what you said where if you act like something, it, it's, it's happened, it's happening. Yeah. You just open yourself up to so many more possibilities because you remove all of those limiting beliefs that you're talking about of like, oh no, I can't do it because of this, or there's this thing that's going to stop me doing it. You just think, no, it's happening. It's it's, it's a done thing, and all of that falls away, and you just you focus more on how you can get that thing to happen.
1: See, that's the thing. I don't actually focus on how it's done, yeah. and I think that's actually the thing that creates the roadblocks yeah. because if like, let's say you want to make a hundred thousand pounds, you would then go, okay, well then I've got to make 10,000 pounds in like the first month or whatever. And if you've not reached that by February, you're like, cancel this goal. I've not got made 20,000 by now. Like I'm not going to make a hundred thousand by the whole year. Um, but you never know, like on December 31st, a hundred thousand could come in. And it's kind of, if you compare it more to like getting pregnant, let's say you want to get pregnant by the end of the year by january like by august you don't need to be half pregnant that's not Mm. how it works like you can get pregnant on december 31st you Mm. don't know how successful you're going to be but it's because when it comes to especially monetary goals or um career goals it's like oh well i should be halfway there yet Mm. and it's like but you don't know if you've set the goal and you've set it with a date it can come in the day before if you're not okay with that date move that date earlier Mm. but don't be like well why hasn't it come like why hasn't it come about yet Um, And that was kind of the same with my campaign where I was like, I I wasn't even known on social media. I had one thousand followers at the time, and I was like, no. But social media is where it's at at the moment. It's where I can get this conversation started. And for me, it was mainly about the fact that I wanted people without scars to be included in the conversation because mm. I could have easily done this in like a scarred with a scar charity or like in a scarred community um, where there are safe spaces to talk about this stuff. Even back then, there was but I wanted people who didn't have the scars to be included in the conversation because that they, without like blaming anyone, that if you talk to anyone with scars, they have a story of someone without a scar making a comment yeah. and that creates the insecurity. So nothing changes unless we include them in the conversations as well.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, um, you know, like you said, you've got so many different types of scars and places and yeah. positions. It's like, You have to be open to that and just be like well this is me this is this is how i am and you know your body has been through so much and it's come out the other side of it it's like you should actually be celebrating that rather than being like hiding it away you know and i think i I read something in one of the interviews you did elsewhere where you said that you died pretty much died having surgery at like 11 12 yeah
1: so well so the problem is that it was printed in the Daily Mail that I died during surgery, which if I died during surgery, I wouldn't know. Yeah. But I actually died in a hospital bed. Yeah. So I do remember it happening and I remember floating above my. So what, to try to put some context to that, um, I had been in hospital for about two months yeah. and they had just found a brain tumour, which I actually had since I was born. But when I was born, I was diagnosed with a condition called hydrocephalus, which means you have too much water in your brain. Yeah. So at 11, when they found the brain tumour, they were like, the brain tumour might be causing it because the tumour was growing and also um, was producing liquid. So Mm -hmm. they were like, that could be what was causing the extra liquid. And because hydrocephalus as a condition doesn't actually have any explanation behind it. So people don't know why some people Mm -hmm. are born with extra liquid in their brain and also extra liquid being constantly produced. So it's not like you can remove that liquid. Um, and so when they removed the tumor, they were like, "Well, you might not have hydrocephalus anymore, which means I don't have a tu- I don't need the tube, or it's called a shunt, which drains the water from my brain to my stomach." Um, so they clamped it off to try and test it, yeah. and that's when I flatlined. Oh. But it was a full day of like the. I hate saying headaches because they're they're ca- they're more like migraines, but they're genuinely the worst migraines in the yeah. world. At one point, Wikipedia actually like the under the symptoms was like the worst migraines in the world. That's what it feels like. And because of the test, they couldn't give me any medication So I was in this excruciating pain for I think about twelve hours. Um and they couldn't do anything. But then my mum and dad had got into like some squabble and they were started to raise their voice at each other. And so my mum was like on the verge of yelling and all like I, I was like having this headache and I said to my like my dad, can you just go take care of mum? Kind of like meaning shut Mum up because mm. she's making my headache worse. Um but my dad saw that as my goodbye to the world I because really? the last thing I said was take care to take care of mum and then flatlined. Yeah. Um and like I I remember seeing my parents like falling to the ground crying and like everyone rushing around me the nurses and then a doctor came in and I remember a doctor slapping me across the face um but I was so calm like weirdly calm I've never felt anything like it where like and uh, to be honest afterwards I felt really guilty because can you imagine seeing your parents like hysterically break into tears and you feeling nothing Mm. whatsoever um but as soon as he sat me I went back into my body and when I told that story to the nurse she was like your eyes were closed the whole time um and also you had flat lines so you shouldn't have a memory of any of that but that's exactly what happened um but then I made the mistake of saying that on loose women which meant it was distorted quite a lot in the Daily Mail but that's the true story I wasn't in surgery but in a hospital bed
0: yeah wow and so what was what was the feeling then when you did open your eyes again and after the doctor had used that classic bit of medical kit of slapping you around the face <laughs>
1: well because it was because they couldn't get the defibrillators out yeah. they were stuck for some reason oh, no. so the nurse was trying to get it out and she was like it's stuck it's st-. and I remember this conversation going on wow. and she was like it's stuck it's stuck and he just like slapped and he was doing the rounds he happened to be doing the rounds um And I think I was very disoriented when I came back in the body, but I had this very clear memory. And to be honest, I didn't talk about it for years because you sound a bit cuckoo when you say, like, you floated above your body and you saw... Like, I also remember seeing a bright white light and going, great, we don't go that way. (laughs) And, like, when you tell people that, you do sound strange. But the reason why I started talking about it was because one of my friends, when I was 20, um, her grandma passed away, and so she was grieving and... I was like I don't know if this is going to help but even though I was in absolute agony all day like the moment where I technically died was so peaceful and so calm and I like to believe that no matter how you die and no matter how much pain you're in moments before you die the actual dying is a peaceful process um and Later, when she stopped grieving, and months later, she was like, "You know that thing you told me actually really helped me and I was like, "Well, maybe I should start talking about it then because I do have a unique experience, mm. and who is it? like what right does anyone else have to say that it's not true, exactly, and a lot yeah. of science actually does back up what I remembered and it's it's a cliche for a reason because movies have taken that, but That's genuinely, and I I don't necessarily think all of it is spiritual. I don't think, I don't necessarily claim that the bright white light is heaven. It could literally be your neurons in your eyes ending. I don't really care. I just know there was a white light. Mm -hmm. And I do know that I didn't feel anything. And it could also be the fact that I was losing sensation in my body. And that's why I didn't feel anything. Um, But I I do find it interesting that my emotions basically disappeared before my well my sight had gone but my sight from above had yeah, gone yeah. um third eye or whatever. and it could yeah. just be the order of that things go that explains it all but I've kind of stopped trying to explain it and just keep it as that's what I remember mm. I don't even care if it's that true but that's what I remember
0: yeah and like you said no one can challenge you on it because yeah. no one can say it's right or wrong because no one else is experienced that what you experienced and so.
1: interestingly the daily mail article the comments were filled with people who were like i had the same experience really? wow. so, of people who i mean it's a rare thing to happen but other have people had have had happened, the same experience um and they were like i i've floated above my body as well
0: wow that's mad yeah it's a lot to like comprehend isn't it i think which is why some people would be like mm, that doesn't sound like a thing yeah so was that that's that surgery was that the first major surgery you had or you been having surgery already Uh, so that that.
1: wasn't a surgery that was literally like lying in a bed and then i had two surgeries after that but up till that before that i'd had 13 surgeries so my first surgery was when i was like a bit more than one yeah so it's been a whole life thing like surgery's never not been a part of my life yeah um and i had about five when i was one to two and then i had one when i was seven and then i had about five when i was that doesn't add up. See, yeah. I even lose count. So trying to write my book was like the most complicated process. Cause I was like, wait, did I have five when I was one or did I have six when I was one? And yeah. obviously I don't remember I don't know, any of yeah. this stuff. Um, and trying to like track down my medical records and be like, and that's why actually what I ended up doing was like, you know, what? forget all of it. I'm not writing about that part. I don't remember any of it. I'm going to start at 11. Cause I do remember that. And I do have a few memories from my surgery when I was seven. But um, actually my first ever memory is recovering from a surgery and I was in the arts and crafts room um, and I had the IV in my right hand and I'm right handed. So I was trying to paint with my left hand mm. and it was Valentine's Day. And in Hong Kong, we made Valentine's Day for our teachers, mm. like, like Valentine's Day cards. So I was trying to make a Valentine's Day card for my year one teacher um, with my left hand, which wasn't working out so well. But that's my first ever memory.
0: Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's and that's like I think to have that many surgeries at such a young age like I so said you can't even remember them which yeah. is wild when you think about it because you know assuming they were quite major surgeries yeah you know, it's like yeah it's a bit
1: well it's interesting because when you list it the way I do and I've been told I do list it like a grocery list yeah. like I need to get apples and oranges today <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just because I've said it so many times and I think to an extent I'm a bit numb to it yeah. because it is my own life um, it's that thing of a lot of the things that sound scary actually aren't as scary as people think so like you hear brain tumour and you're like oh my god the pain you must have been in and I remember I had a really bad stomach ache like last week mm. and I was like this is worse <laughs> this
0: is the worst pain the, ever like, <laughs> yeah,
1: and it, you don't actually get this I think to an extent, because I'll never know someone else's experience of pain, but there are days when I'm like, this is awful. This is like, I don't have this broader context of like not being miserable about a cold. Um, But I think in the broader scheme of things, I am generally more grateful for life. I'm more generally like a problem, not illness, but like a problem has to be quite a big problem for me to actually be Mm. affected by it and then I'll have weeks like I had a really bad health week two weeks ago and it's probably one of the worst weeks I had in like maybe three or four years and it was one of those things where I was like if this is the worst it gets then I've come a long way Mm. since what I went through as a child because I was still going to meetings I was still like no one in the meetings had any clue that I wasn't feeling a hundred percent and I was like if I can still do that then I'm still miles ahead of where I was that little girl at 11 years old lying in hospital bed.
0: Yeah. And how was that for like, you know, your family and stuff? Like obviously you mentioned your parents. How was that that dealing? How did they deal with that? Because it must have been quite tough in terms of seeing their little girl going through all of these surgeries.
1: I think the main thing is, and I've also experienced it later in life, being the person who's helping a family member or a friend go through illness. It's so much worse when you can't do anything. Mm. So having I've recently gone through something with a a family member who's really ill, and the whole time I was thinking, I wish I could be in that hospital bed, and I've never wished that in my life, especially Mm, for someone who's spent so much time already. But you have more control if you're that person. And when you're lying in a hospital bed, you see the pain you're inflicting on other people as well and i did see that as a child that and it's really hard because at 11 years old you don't have the language to explain it so one of the main things i used to think as a child was like i'm literally causing my parents pain right now and if i didn't exist they wouldn't be in this pain um which is really morbid thought but mm. you just don't have the language to realize what you're really going through it's almost like what you're going through is not age appropriate. Mm. Um which is weird because it's your life. But um, I think it led to them having a bit of, um, I, I don't even want to say paranoia because it's almost like appropriate paranoia yeah, of, of like any time, I really wanted to go horse riding in my first year of uni and mm. I used to love horse riding as a child. But as soon as my su- surgeries got really serious, they were like, when you're not going horse riding, you fall off a horse and you crack your head open and then you're going to have to na- have another surgery. But then I was in uni, it was the first year of uni, I hadn't been in hospital for eight years. So Mm. I was like, you know what, I'm an adult, I can decide what I want to do. And it was like a four week argument with my mum of like, you're not going to do that. I need you to call me after every horse I (laughs) do. And it's this really like scared thing or like if I casually mention the fact that I have a headache on the phone. And not like a hydrocephalus headache, but just a headache. Mm. They're like, well, go to the doctor. And I'm like, no one goes to the doctor for a headache. If it's serious, I'll go to the doctor. I know when it's serious, but it's that thing of, I don't think they're ever going to be 100% okay around me. Yeah, And that everything is like the worst case scenario, even if it's like, actually, in reality, I've not been in hospital since I was 19. I'm 25. That's pretty good going. Mm. My longest streak has been eight years, so <laughs> I'd like to go back to that. But currently, I'm on six years. Yeah. That's pretty good going. So,
0: yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just think it's it's great how you know you have gone through so much, and some people would you know they'd live their life like oh life is doom and gloom. I'm you know I'll probably be in hospital again next year. Or you know they have like certain kind of beliefs and mindsets. So how what for you was like a turning point in terms of like get, getting from all of these surgeries into a position where you can actually look back and reflect it and, and almost laugh about yeah. it like you, like you have been and kind of just be like, do you know what? That's just my life. That's just how it's, how it was.
1: I think laughter has always been a coping mechanism and especially my kind of humor which is quite morbid humor um has always made other people quite uncomfortable because I was making these morbid jokes at like seven years old but it's just because of the nature of my life but I think in terms of mentality there were two definite shifts um so my I had the bulk of my two... I I, would, I kind of split my whole... I've had a number of hospitalizations, but there were two major ones that stand out in my mind. One when I was 11 and one when I was 19. And when I came out of the one when I was 11 and I'd been in hospital... I'd been in the ICU, which in America is the um, intensive care unit. No one stays in the intensive care unit and can walk out basically looking like the way I look and am as able as I am. But I did. And what that caused was me actually being scared of everything Mm. um and i think the reason why i never really went into a dark place after that of like i had a lot of that during hospital so i had a lot of why me what caused this what did i do um and then the response would always be like don't worry everything happens for a reason so i was like what reason was i mean to my brother did i not drink enough milk did i like all of this stuff Mm. because again 11 year old and it sounds childish but i was a child Mm. um and so i had a lot of that in hospital but once i came out i was so grateful for being outside can you imagine not going outside for three months Um, or even leaving your bed for three months um and but i was scared of everything i saw everything as a threat i saw everything as a potential harm to lead me back to hospital and my ultimate goal was to never go back to hospital but then it was eight years of me not going into hospital so like bit by bit over eight years you would think you would get more and more confident in the fact that you could do more things but I went the opposite way and I was like crossing more and more things off my list and I'm like but it's been eight years so I need to like restrict even more um and then in my it was my first year of uni that I started talking about this stuff for the first time and I had a lot of um emotions around like I just had a lot of shame around talking about it and I was finally talking about it for the first time and I kind of embraced it I'd got a tattoo about it and I was like I don't have to be ashamed of this I'm fine like and it might actually be healthy like I've not been in hospital for eight years and I'd got to the point where I was like I'm done I'm never having surgery again and I actually started living stopped being scared of everything and that was like two months later I went back into hospital oh um completely unrelated but yeah. um
0: what was the of that
1: nothing literally i had an obstructed bowel and uh. they said obstructed bowels can happen to anyone who's had an abdominal surgery and doesn't need to be anything major if you've had like a c-section which is on the scale of like serious surgeries is like mm. really not serious it's like a one um you can have uh, obstructed bowels and uh, it happened to be twice and so i was stuck in hospital for six weeks without any food or anything and that for the first half of that I remember being really angry being like I did everything right I literally stopped anything I enjoyed and I was a very active child I like loved horse riding I loved rollerblading I played ice hockey like all of like the really dangerous sports I used to love and I stopped doing all of it because I was like it's all gonna land me in mm. a hospital and I was like but I did all of that and I landed in hospital anyway and that actually Reverse all of the fear that I'd had for the last eight years. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to end up in hospital, then I might as well do everything that I love anyway. Mm. So that was January. And that summer, I had a summer. I called my YOLO summer. <laughs> I literally went like... I used to love wakeboarding. I started wakeboarding, paddleboarding. Um, I went cliff diving, <laughs> which was quite a big thing in Hong Kong. And I was scared of heights. So like jumping off a cliff was like... <laughs> yeah um that is
0: scary yeah and uh,
1: to be honest I'm not sure I'd do it again but I did that (laughs) summer (laughs) (laughs) it's crossed off my list um and I just started it it was it was funny how much fear had taken over my life not even in terms of things that were dangerous to me so for example I never went to dance classes because I was like oh well I don't want to be a fat one in the back of the room blah blah and all of that just went with this hospitalization around 18 um when I was 19 and I was like it had spread to everything I was scared of everything I was scared of like being rejected I was scared of like failing I was scared I was scared of life and so I just was I I just sat in this hospital bed for six weeks thinking about every single opportunity I missed out on and it wasn't the big things and I think people always think it's going to be the big things but I remember the main memory that I kept, kept coming back to was it was A December night and my friends invited me to their house and it was a 20 minute walk it was raining and it was cold and so I didn't go and that's all I thought about they were playing cards I love playing cards Mm. and they were like come on it's your favourite game and this is it's called Liver and Rummy and you play it till like 3 in the morning Mm. and it's I think it's something like 12 rounds it's my favourite game but I just didn't go because it was cold and raining and I was lying in this hostel bed being like what I would give right now to I would walk like an hour and a half to yeah. get there. I don't care. I'd be able to walk number 1. I'd be able to be with my friends. I'd be back at uni. Um I'd be able to drink. I'd be able to play cards, like all of these things which I kind of took for granted. Um so when I left hospital when I was 19 I was like I refuse to take it for granted. I'm going to literally make take advantage of life and not be scared of it anymore because if I am going to end up in hospital again then I don't want to be sitting in a hospital bed full of regrets. Like I wouldn't be sitting in a hospital bed full of memories at least um and i just i dreaded the thought that i was going to die at 19 with a bunch of regrets and all i'd done was study
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is true and i think like what you just said about having that gratitude of like the really simple things is so powerful because i know like there's times where i've like put myself through stuff and you look back on it and you're like you just restricted yourself so much for like the most ridiculous reasons Whereas in fact you should look at all the positives of of that situation, you know, like you said, you you could say, you know, I I can walk, I'm, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it's like that that feeling of like just showing more gratitude for stuff changes a heck of a lot in terms of like the way your mind works.
1: Yeah, and I think it's almost I I saw it most with British culture on mm. the whole because we don't live in a culture that is like that, so. I left hospital um on the I left hospital early Feb and I remember I came back to uni on the 11th of February um and I was walking back from university. It was the first time I'd actually been able to walk to university. It was only a 20 minute walk, but it was like really steep hill and I'd done it. And on the way back I said to my friends, like, we really need to be appreciating life more. We should and if you can just imagine like 19-year-old uni girls with a hangover <laughs> and I'm the only sober one because I can't drink. And I'm like preaching to them about like how we should appreciate life. And we're walking past one of our neighbors' house. And I'm like, like seriously guys, like stop. And like i pulled both their hands and just stopped them and i was like we need to like stop and smell the roses like literally look how beautiful those roses are I'm pointed at this my neighbor's yard um And my friend turned to me and she was like, Michelle, those are weeds. And I was like, but they're beautiful weeds. She was like, how long are you going to be like this? And I was like, it's going to pass, don't worry. But like, we have to stop and appreciate it. The reason why I remember the date was because it was my friend's birthday. And three days later, it's Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day in uni, especially my uni, especially with my girlfriends, um, was the day everyone was miserable because they were single and they didn't have anything fun to do. And the year before we would got like Ben and Jerry's and sat in front of Bridget Jones and was like the really cliched thing. And I just woke up that morning and one of my housemates started moaning and I was like, really? We're going to spend a whole 24 hours miserable because what? Because you don't have a boyfriend? Great. I don't have a boyfriend either. Move on. Like, we're going to do something fun tonight. And I lived in this friendship group that made fun out of nothing. And I was yeah. like, we really going to spend 24 hours being miserable. And what was funny was that year, the boys were even more miserable than the girls because... <laughs> all the boys the year before had had girlfriends and this year they couldn't get dates so i was like you know what we're going on a quadruple date so we went on a date like the eight of us um and just had a really nice day and i was like it's actually like valentines day isn't about romantic love it's about love so let's just like spend the day with people we love we all love each other let's spend some time yeah, together yeah. we went out to our favorite club and it was a great night and i was like It was just that context of we, people, like, give anything the excuse to be like, let's be miserable for a day. I can't enjoy this day because it's Valentine's Day. Like, pretend it's an average Thursday then. I don't really care. Just like there's no point moping for 24 hours Mm. over something that literally was a fact yesterday and will be a fact tomorrow. Like, you're still going to be single tomorrow. You're not going to be depressed about it tomorrow. So Mm. it was that. Uh, gratefulness in that context is probably one of my main memories after that and that euphoria that kind of happens after uni after hospital where you're like wow everything's amazing and mm. you kind of feel like a newborn where it's like i've not seen the outside yet i've not seen a flower recently
0: yeah yeah that's quick it's good to be able to have that kind of fresh perspective i get yeah you know despite all of the stuff that's preceded that um, but you mentioned like people you know, finding stuff to be miserable for for, yeah. like, no reason. Why do you think that happens? Why do you think people, like, attach themselves to, like, those bad feelings or those bad um, moments and they, like, make themselves feel worse about it?
1: I think they're scared. I think it's all driven by fear because it's a lot easier to be, like, be miserable about what you don't have than actually go after the things you do you do want. Um, and whilst you're complaining about, So-and-so has more followers than me. So-and-so has, like, that brand deal I want. I mean, I'm talking about examples from my life because (laughs) I'm an influencer now, um, which is a weird thing to say considering this was never my end goal for my career. But that's the kind of conversations I'm around every day. And I went to a... uh, My last blogger event was actually on the day... I don't know if people remember this, but all the Instagram numbers started changing. And I was sitting there surrounded by, like, 20 people just complaining about it. And like people being like, well, I just lost 20,000 followers today. And I was like, they're bots. It's going to make no difference to your engagement. And like, obviously it turned out to not be and it turned out to be a glitch. Mm. But I was like, are we really going to spend a three hour brunch talking about (laughs) this? And it's that kind of thing where I'm like, well, why why does that happen? Why are they complaining about that specifically? It's fear because it like it's around the thing of being unliked, being unloved. If they're getting their self-esteem from their number on their page, their numbers just decrease. So what, does their worth decrease? Does their value decrease? Mm. Um, and they don't see that. They don't see, and like people find it, um, recently I've been talking a lot on my page about how I'm really not attached to my number. Like I won't, I don't know how many followers I have on either of my accounts, the only reason I know my memes one at the moment is because I just hit hundred thousand, and I'm a normal person. I do see milestones, yeah. but like, I don't. I on that day I didn't know how many followers I lost because I don't check it. Yeah. And people think it's something I just say and don't actually feel. But I'm like no, because if I get attached to that number, and I think it's quite a conscious thing to detach from it mm. because you are getting endorphin hits every time you get a like course, on your page. Yeah. But I consciously detach from it because I'm like if I lose half of them. Tomorrow, I don't want my self esteem to plummet because of it. Mm. Um, and I actually went through that because the month I went viral, I gained about ten thousand followers. The next month, I lost seven thousand because I got glandular fever, so I stopped posting. Mm. Um, and I felt that impact on my self esteem, and I was like, "If we're going to carry on running this page, and again, this is like four years ago, I can't do this. I can't have my self esteem fluctuate with whether I'm getting engagement or not from." on my end, complete strangers. Because on your end, you feel like you know me. But on my end, I see usernames. That's all I see. Um, And so it's kind of that thing where it doesn't even need to be an influencer thing. It could be like, um, let's complain about the fact that someone else gets a promotion because you didn't get the promotion. Okay, but maybe it's not the right time for you. Maybe you've not worked as long as they have. Or maybe you're not putting in the hours they're putting in. Um, And one thing I'm talking about recently is that uh people are always jealous of the accomplishment but they Mm. like would you actually so for example i get a lot of people dming me being like oh i I would love to write a book i'm like okay but would you have said that the day i got 20 rejections Mm. or the day that my agent was like don't worry there's still self-publishing and i had to go through the scary thing of leaving that agency finding a new agency and as soon as i found a new agency i got a book deal in a month but being when you start writing a book the main thing you're told is finding an agency is the hardest part so me leaving a top agency in new york was probably a lot of people would say the stupidest thing i could have done but actually the thing that got me in the book deal but you wouldn't be jealous of my journey at that point if i started i didn't talk about it online at that time but if i did um a lot of people would be like good luck or like a lot of people would actually be like you should give up like that is what I was like oh it's a pipe dream like maybe you'll get it published at 40 maybe you should just like try something else that's actually what people say at that point but then you look at the accomplishment you see the book out and you're like oh how did you do it well I sat at a computer and wrote every day for literally like six months to a year and then had to edit it do you want to do that because unless you want to do that then don't be jealous of the accomplishment
0: yeah 100% and what what, what's the way that you deal with those rejections because like getting told no twenty yeah. times on something that you're very passionate about and not just passionate about, that like, is your life. Like how's how does that affect you? Does it it's make funny, you feel like I got that?
1: a really big rejection today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm still really from that one. And <laughs> I opened the email, closed, well, this is literally how I dealt with it yesterday. I opened the email, closed the email, was like, I can't deal with this right now. So watched the TV show, went back to it an hour later, replied to the email, was like, thank you very much. Like, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And then was like, OK, we're just going to we're just going to be productive today because I have this thing around if you're going to have a bad day at least make it a productive one because at the end of the day you'll be proud even if it's so what i tend to do make it
0: the best bad day ever yeah
1: (laughs) well so i tend to do all the tasks i absolutely hate so i spent all day editing a youtube video yesterday because Mm. i was like i hate doing this it's quite a mindless activity so i don't have to like actually think that much about it and at least it will get done but i'm human i have those bad days i didn't feel great yesterday Mm. i was like great what do I do now and that's the main thing my brain jumps to is like what do I do now because anytime I get rejected I've already kind of planned it in because I always with my job I have so many things going on I've kind of created time for it so now I have this massive gap of time of like well that was going to take us that was a six month project I was pretty sure was going to happen so what do I do with six months now (laughs) um but what I do on what I did all of yesterday was just like shut off thoughts and like I'm very good at not listening to my thoughts when they don't serve me and all of yesterday my brain was feeding me junk like you're never going to get an offer like this again you're never like there's no point trying because the next one will be rejected too like that was what was going through my head all day yesterday like why why are you even trying why are you even bothering and so I just it happens I'm human but I don't listen to it and I was like in my head I'm like give myself a week then we're going to figure out a game plan. Um, And that's what I do. I'm like, okay, well, how are we going to inform the next thing? And what I also remember at a time of rejection is that everything happens for a reason. And any time I've been rejected has been for a good reason if I look backwards. So what's quite funny is I'm speaking at Oxford next week and I got rejected from Oxford. And so I tweeted yesterday being like, I'm speaking at the uni that rejected me eight years ago. Um, But and it was, at the time, it was the biggest devastation not getting into Oxford. This is something I'd worked for for the last, like, four years. And I got into Bristol. And genuinely, I'm not sure I'd be where I am today because Bristol built up my confidence, and I don't think Oxford would have. Mm. Oxford, I would have been the stupidest person in the class, whereas in Bristol, it wasn't about academics as much. So I was able to have a social life, something I never had as a child. Um, growing up, both from hospital and also because my school was very, like work 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 I finally had a chance to have a social life and that was the best thing for me I didn't see it when I was 18 years old but Mm. at 21 I could see it and was like thank god I went to Bristol um
0: hindsight's beautiful thing right? it's so
1: beautiful (laughs) and also you have now like looking back if I mean that's just one example but examples are earlier than that I have like 20 examples of every time I got rejected and it actually worked out in the end or the fact that it doesn't even have to be an outright rejection like I always want to be a psychologist in the last two months of graduating I suddenly was like I got PTSD it was like I can't be a psychologist but mm. that changed my path to becoming a life coach mm. um, and I would never regret that now and I think that's what helps me with rejection is that if I remember that everything it will happen at the right time and it's not necessarily a no sometimes it's just a not yet um, and even with my book getting rejected for three years. Wow. It came out when it was supposed to come out. Yeah. It came out when my career was at its peak. Like, I hope it's not its peak. <laughs> I hope it's still gonna continue to peak. But the time when I wanted it to come out yeah. wouldn't have It'd been, been the right soon. time. Yeah. yeah. And also a lot of the stuff that I added on to at the end are from points in my careers that happened since. So, um and maybe it just needed three years in order for me to have a bit more um hindsight to be able to add to those parts of my book Mm. um and i do think it is it is hindsight that makes all the difference and if you use those examples from your life and your experiences from your life to help you with like newer rejections that is that makes it easier, and also I do believe in allowing yourself to have your emotions, and that mm. I was allowed to have a bad day yesterday. Yeah. Doesn't matter if, like, it doesn't matter how many silly thoughts I had that I had to ignore. It doesn't matter how many TV shows I had to just escape my life for a bit. At least it's a TV show and not like smoking or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Um, but I just had my, like, I I kind of keep it contained where I'm like, have your bad day. Tomorrow we're picking ourselves up, yeah. and that's the way I deal with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's great because I think a lot of the stuff we do is like we don't accept when things don't go our way. Yeah. Sometimes we don't even accept when things do go our way. Yeah. And we hold ourselves back from like really feeling what that's about by protecting ourselves. Yeah. And instead of just what we should be doing is going, right, actually, okay, cool, I might be having a really crap day, but that's fine. Like, yeah. We have crap days, we have good days, we have amazing days, we have average days. It's like you just got to allow yourself to feel that when you're having it and not fight against it because that's where you get that build up of the tension yeah which then causes you know untold you know problems and issues and stuff
1: and I also think at least I tried that's the main thing that I was because I have these negative thoughts so I have like everyone else like oh why did you even bother and then I try to counteract it in my mind either I ignore it if I don't have the energy to or I try to counteract it and even when I was trying to counteract it yesterday I was like At least I tried. Mm. Like I tried something. That's a good thing. And I tried something new um, and it didn't work out in the first. But in the context of like a career, I was a beginner in it. I'm Mm. still a beginner in it. Like I tried it once. You don't often succeed the first time you try something. And I think even just thinking about that really helped me yesterday.
0: Yeah. And with like writing the book, obviously, like you said, it was like a year long process plus editing, which is, you know, another few months or whatever it is. Like what? What did you learn about yourself through that whole process? Because I wrote at the back end of last year and released it in January, a free ebook which was just like fifty pages. Yeah, I didn't think it was that; I mean, it was like forty-five pages. And I learned so much just through going the pro- through the process of writing about the things that I was passionate about and that you know I've I've taken on as understandings and trying to like relay those back to people who would be reading. And just it was almost a, a twice as much. Fulfilling for me to write it as it probably was for someone reading it, if you see what I mean. So, like, what what were the things that you learned uh, writing your book?
1: The main thing is because it's a memoir, I finally put um, every experience I've gone through in the context of the age I was at at the time because I think there's a natural instinct in all of us as a child to think you're always really grown up. And when you're actually writing about an 11-year-old and you're like, if I imagine an 11-year-old now, and not me, but another 11-year-old, yeah. how small that person mm. would be, um, and like half my height, and how like, imagine that child going into hospital. It was things like that. And I think I've always ha- I've always erred on the side of being very hard on myself. I'm quite an ambitious person, and that I think often comes together, is like, you're ambitious, therefore you must be hard on yourself, because mm. otherwise you won't achieve as much. Um and going through those memories, and especially the stuff around like thirteen years old, where it was like, "Why aren't you as thin as your friends? Why aren't you, like, why aren't you achieving as much?" And I'm like, "You're a thirteen year old. Mm. You shouldn't be working this hard." And I was writing this book, and I was like, "Why is she working that hard? She <laughs> should be going out and playing with her friends." Or like when I was seventeen, and I was like determined to get in Oxford, and I'm like, "You've not even gone out yet. Like, why haven't you? You're seventeen. You're meant to be going out to house parties, mm. and you're staying in every night." and It was kind of putting everything that I thought I was really grown up in, being like, actually no, she was a child, and you're like that child still exists in with you within you. And I now work a lot with like inner child therapy because I think it's so powerful because to be compassionate to your inner child means you start having a more loving relationship with yourself, Mm. and I think that's the greatest thing I learned from my book, and also the fact that. I think throughout my life in the school, I grew up in a boarding school and I was gaslit a lot in um, boarding school for people listening. Gaslighting is essentially when um, your feelings and emotions are undermined uh, a lot. um, And the person gaslighting you wants you to believe their version of events more than your own version of events. Mm. So a lot of the memories I had, um, my book starts with a case of abuse in my school Mm. and... I wasn't 100% sure it happened. And so when I first wrote it, the first thing my dad said was like, I know you think it's accurate, but just ask one of your friends if they remember it happening. You say there were 90 girls watching. Like, one of them must remember this. And that evening I happened to be going to a um, dinner party with my school friends, and there were 12 people around there. And I just said it quietly to the person sitting next to me, like, hey, do you remember, in like we called it oh god I don't know what I called it in my book because I use fake names in my book but yeah. the first year of school and um, we called it a particular house I can't even remember it now yeah. but I said do you remember that happening and she was like yeah I remember it because your screams weren't human like wow. they sounded like an animal and it was just this moment of like being validated mm-hmm. and being like wait this did actually happen it's gone like, from
0: being like a memory to like yeah. something that someone's like you and said packed like, up
1: I mean, it's not going to be a spoiler because it's in the first chapter, but like a teacher dragging you across the carpet wow. when you're unconscious, like you're like, but I'm unconscious. How could I remember this? Because I, was, I wasn't fully unconscious, clearly, because yeah. I do remember it. Um, and I was like, wait, so that actually happened? That happened in a school and no one did anything about it and no one said anything about mm-hmm. it. Like when you grow up you start going that can't have happened because logically and rationally if a child got dragged across the carpet in front of 90 other girls someone would do something about it that teacher would be fired so you start not believing the memory because i'm like it must not have happened because otherwise there would have been a consequence Mm. um and the fact that like no like there were two teachers present no one said anything um and so as a result for so that happened when i was 11 and i started writing a book when i was 19 for eight years all i'd done was question this memory because yeah. i'm like and what ended up happening was i was talking to this one person the whole table joined in and everyone added small memories to it and all of them pieced together what ended up being in that chapter because i 100 percent remember it i've mm. always known i remembered it but then there was always this layer of doubt over the top where i'm like but logically and rationally it doesn't make sense because if that happened she should be fired why was she never fired mm. um And then I was like, well, surely it didn't happen because otherwise I would have told my parents and like things like that, which add on top of it. And a lot of those stories can start to build in eight years. And it was tearing all of them down over like the course of it. And I mean, it still happens to this day. I went to a party at the weekend and a friend from well she's not even a friend. I wasn't in a class with her. I was I didn't live with her in my house. Um, and she came up to me, she was like, and there was, there's a part of my book where I talk about my friends making up a song called the Michelle Stop Eating song, <laughs> um, which <laughs> sounds funny and is funny. It was a really funny song, but actually in terms of body positivity and eating disorders, not that funny and right. also has an impact on a 15 year old girl quite a lot. And this person who I probably talked to five times in my life, she was like, I've read your book uh, and I remember the Michelle Stop Eating song because it was such a catchy song the whole year was singing it and so it still happens to this day where I'm like people are validating these memories that I wasn't like Mm. your memories can't be 100% certain because they don't exist they're not physical Mm. so when they live in your brain for so long you're like am I sure this is what happened Um, and I've been having that along the way and obviously I've done as much fact checking as, as I can with the book but memories that always walked by the perception that you have of the world anyway um, and I think that's one of the greatest gifts my book has given me is yeah. that it's validated the more traumatic things that happened yeah. in a school that should have taken accountability for its actions
0: yeah and even just you saying that it makes me just think to like the me too movement and how yeah. all of a sudden with one person speaking out how everyone else just went actually yeah this happened to me and this, yeah. happened, to me and this happened to me and it's just like that thing of everyone's being validated by, oh, so I'm not the only one. Like it happened to someone else. So yeah. that means if I now speak, then someone else will feel like I can speak about. It. And then, you know, even like guys started to coming out about stuff, and yeah. it's just like, and it's a very um, similar kind of pattern, isn't it, of like unpackaging it.
1: The thing with me too, as well, there's a lot of people, the like naysayers or the critics, whatever you want to call them, are always like, well, how come you suddenly have this memory twenty years later? Mm. Because you don't consciously recount every single memory every day to be like, yep, all my memories are up to date today. (laughs) Like, your memory does need to be jogged in order to bring something up. And um, it's with things like... um, writing a book I had all of these memories come up and so a lot of my friends and are like how did you remember this like uh, my, a lot of my friends still haven't finished my, reading my book, so I'm still getting texts like every yeah. day being like <laughs> how did you remember this and I'm like because the more you remember things the more memories keep coming up and as I was writing the book new things would come into my mind and I don't think because I like in coaching, you learn a lot about the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. So much is in your unconscious mind that you don't um, don't tap into. And just because you don't consciously remember it every day doesn't mean it's not there. Mm. And you can remember something that you've not thought about for 10 years and then suddenly be like, oh, yeah, and that happened. And because it's kind of almost been sitting in the back of your brain for 10 years, it does almost have like hazy edges around yeah. it. If you're like, Are you sh- am I sure that happened? But every single thing that I wrote about in that book, I fact checked with someone who was like, that did happen, mm. but it just seems hazier in your head. Cause you've just not recalled it as many times as other memories that you would probably use more frequently, like your phone number. Mm. Um, and that's, I think what actually is happening with me too, is that people are like, Oh, there's this traumatic memory that I didn't want to think about. So I pushed to the back of my mind mm. for years, but actually it's still there. And I do know this happened. Um, but it's just a little bit hazy. Cause I, don't like bringing it to the front of my mind as often as other mm. memories. Well,
0: it's um, what's it called? It's called? Repression, isn't it? When you yeah. choo- well, you don't choose, but you subconsciously choose to push something to the back of your mind and not to ever revisit. Safe. Yeah, it. and then all of a sudden it comes out, and it's this kind of that. And um, there's two things I want to pick up on from that kind of story there of the book. Is one um the, the abuse in school. Like what what level of abuse was that?
1: That was mainly it. That was the I think it's more neglect than any... There was just one incident, mm. um, and it's just the book happens to start with it, yeah. where I fainted in a classroom, and it had been months of... I would say I had... Oh, I hate saying this, because this isn't what a victim says, but like I would say I had some part of it in the fact that like I was a very stubborn child who'd gone into hospital so many times, and I knew what hospital meant. I knew hospital meant being taken away from my friends, Mm. lying in a hospital bed for ages. So I did to an extent uh, underplay the symptoms I was going through, but there was particularly one teacher who um, I was feeling really ill that morning and I probably should have insisted that I didn't go to class, but I pushed myself and went um, and she was, she got annoyed because I was crying so loudly she couldn't teach. So she sent me out of the classroom and when I went to go open the door, I remember like all the energy draining out of my hands and like, fainting in the doorway Mm. and I guess my foot propping the door half open annoyed her because she then was like get either get in or out of the room like kind of mentality and then she was like fine if you're not gonna move I'll move you move you myself and she dragged me across the carpet and I still remember like getting the carpet burns and that woke me up to an extent but then it was it was break time so like all the girls started coming out she yelled at everyone to go back in the classroom. But everyone had heard this, like, ruckus of, like, me not only crying in the room, but then being dragged out. And then the girls in my class screaming because they were like...
0: What's going on? Yeah, and yeah. that,
1: like, I looked dead across the carpet. Wow. You're dragging a dead person across the floor. <laughs> um, and I. the reason why I call it abuse now is because I think it is and it should yeah, be classed yeah. as that. Um, And especially if you think about the fact that this was what a 50 year old six-year-old woman and I was an 11-year-old child Mm. and nothing was done. The teacher wasn't fired. She taught me for the next seven years. (sighs) um, And and she was a teacher who didn't have a prominent place. So she taught things like PHSE, general studies. Mm. There was no reason why she needed to be teaching me for the next seven years. And it was very rare that one teacher taught you for the whole seven years. There was something like... 70 faculty members like it could have really easily been swapped but I actually think it was purposely done um and the fact that there were a lot of so when I came back she said to me oh nice to see you back up on your feet so it was things like that where I'm like it was almost like you were smug about the fact that you got away with it yeah um and so it was quite a like ongoing thing in the first my book is separated into three sections but that section was kind of I didn't realise how much that experience with that one teacher made me so ashamed of everything. And that, like, it was also the the power dynamic of an authority figure yeah. and that I was in a country without my parents. So I went to boarding school in England. My parents lived in Hong Kong. That you're meant to literally be, like, my pastoral care. Yeah, that protect, And yeah. that you're abusing it. Um, and just, like, she was always this, like, almost haunting image throughout that whole school time because any time... I saw her from the opposite end of the corridor. I would turn around and walk, like, because I was just like, I just don't want to see mm. her.
0: How did it affect you then being in, in the class with her over that following seven years?
1: I I think the only way I coped, and I think this is why it was so validating when the book came out, was the only way I coped was pretending it never happened. Mm. Um And, like, in my head, I was like, I was unconscious. So it couldn't, like it couldn't have been a clear memory anyway. Like someone would have done something about it. There were two teachers standing there. Um, And so that I just underplayed it. And Mm. in the class, so she had, she wasn't the deputy house mistress, but she was the next person below that. So she was very high up Mm. in the school. Um, And uh, as I got further and further up and as I became like an officer and prefect and all these things, and I got these like leadership roles when I was around 16, 17, I'd always have to go to her to mm, like yeah. talk about it. And so she would always say this sentence around like, I just think about that young little girl feeling so poorly on the floor. And now you're such a strong... And it was like, it was so creepy every yeah, time it she said it. Yeah, sick, yeah. Yeah, and it like, it made my skin crawl. And I was like, I just want to be away from this woman. Mm. Um, and I think that was the main thing around it. And I think it was just important thing for me to say personally, but also I think I want to talk about it because... This is the stuff that does happen in schools every day, but because it's not classed as abuse, because it's like a blurred line. It's not like she slapped me. It's not like Mm. she punched me. Um, It's not like she did anything after that, but then it was almost that power was still there Mm. um, and that I'd almost given her that power. Um, It took away my power and it took away my strength because it was like I was always to be honest i always just felt really small around her like even when i was 17 18 i still felt really small around her and that i couldn't vocalize what i actually want to say to her and i had this like grand illusion with a ton of my friends that on the last day of school i was finally going to punch her and like <laughs> um and then on the last day of school she came up to me with my parents and i said nothing like i didn't actually yeah. say a single word and i remember she walked away and i was like fuck i missed my chance yeah sorry i'm not sure i'm <laughs> just Maybe. swear um that I, I just remember thinking, like, I'm such a coward. Like, mm. that was my chance to say something. Even if I didn't punch I could have said something. Yeah. I didn't say anything. i could anything. have a dick or something. Yeah, <laughs> or just, like, even be like, how you treated <laughs> yeah. me. Like, just something. And yeah. I said nothing. I yeah. didn't even say thank you. I literally just stood there. And then my um, I remember my dad said something like, wait, wasn't that the one who wasn't very nice to you? Because that's all I told them. She wasn't very nice to me because she ended up sending an email whilst I was in hospital, not after my first four surgeries, the following, like, in the next three months, but after my brain tumor was diagnosed, saying that I should slap her on the wrist for not believing her. And she sent that email to my parents, never said it to me. Um, And, yeah so that and so I said to my parents oh she was just like nasty to me I didn't actually say what she did or wow yeah Do
0: you know what it's just I think it goes down to like what you were saying earlier about the age thing and and having that fear and not maybe necessarily knowing how to process it and deal with it yeah but it it reminds me so much and this is so funny of talking of unpackaging memories or something that happened to me in school where I was with I can't, again, hazy around the edges, I can't remember exactly, but it was in the gym after like a PE session and it was the teacher who I don't even think was our PE teacher, was just another PE teacher and then two other students and me and we were all getting told off for probably being clowns and he was telling off the other two and I was kind of like stood behind him like messing about trying to make the other two (laughs) laugh as you do as like a 15 year old kid. And he somehow clocked me, and he turned around, and I had this memory of him. I can't remember, quite remember if he like grabbed me round the throat or like grabbed the scruff of like my yeah. collar and tie, and literally threw me onto the floor. Oh my and gosh. I just remember being in like absolute shock that like this yeah. authoritative figure had done that. And, and
1: also just in terms of strength, yeah. like his size. Yeah, there's literally nothing size. I can do to yeah. that like a
0: grown man who you know probably would have been mid thirties to fourteen ish versus a 15 year old boy and it was just like just thinking of it now i'm like geez, how did i not say anything about that
1: but the thing is at the time it wasn't like that teacher would never get away with that now my teacher i'd like to think would not get like purely out of fear and especially because of things like the me too movement where they would be like no the school would just be like just from a liability standpoint Mm. get rid of the teacher before like anyone catches wind of this kind of thing protect their back kind of thing but back then, because there was no accountability for that kind of behaviour, it was brushed on the carpet, yeah. let's pretend like it didn't happen, yeah. you then take on the fear, you take on the shame. And I genuinely think I lived with shame around that memory when I'm like, mm. as an adult now, I'm like, whose shame was it? Yeah, Not mine. You had mine. no control over it as well. Yeah. Right? And... but. As a child as well, I also think because they're the authority figure, you're like, I must have done something. Or like in your example, it's like you did do something, but it's like, but was that warranted? No. Like, and also is it even equal? No, like not at all. Um, But if you even give a child like a a small thing that they could have done to deserve it. Mm. So like, I remember I used to replay things like, oh, well, I should have probably just not gone to class Mm. that morning, like things like that there was nothing I did wrong in that situation and even like you joking behind someone's back like that could have easily been dealt with with mm. a stop doing that yeah. like
0: that would have scared me enough
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but like you don't need the extreme abuse which yeah. is what like abusive behavior um yeah. and I'd like to think that it's dealt with better now but I like I think i realized how scared i was of her when the book came out because Mm. that summer was difficult just even thinking like am i going to receive a message from her am i like and some of the teachers i did talk about and she wasn't the only one who Mm. like she was the only one who did something to that extent but there was a lot of like diet culture a lot of like body shaming i had a few of them comment being like so excited to read the book so proud of you michelle and i'm like wait till you read it yeah Yeah. I'm like you're not gonna be proud of me when you read it (laughs) um and that summer was just like it was almost like waiting for the penny to drop and waiting for the like someone to reach out and like slam me for writing about their experiences but I I just had to keep reminding myself like I need to tell these stories because the only reason I don't want to is because of shame
0: yeah and again it just goes down to I think it's down to having the courage at the time but as a kid you don't have the courage to speak out about it and I just hope that like anyone who's listening or you know seen stuff or has read the book who can now have the courage to speak out about stuff what no matter how small it might have seemed at the time if it's wrong it's wrong it doesn't matter like the scale of it yeah it's like wrong is wrong and it's like if people are abusing their power or authority or anything like that it's like Hundred percent, we should be encouraging people to speak out about it. Which, yeah. thankfully, we're seeing, you know, with the Me Too stuff and other stuff that's happening in the press. There's like almost that. Uh, I don't know if encouragement's the right word, but encouragement for people to start. Well, it's creating that myself. like
1: safety to be it's, able to yeah, speak out.
0: Yeah, and also knowing you're not alone in what's probably like you know, in my case, maybe in your case, like yeah. we probably wouldn't have been the only ones who, who experienced yeah. that on behalf of that person. And it goes to show with you know um, I don't even want to say his name to be honest, but with the yeah. the Me Too stuff, you know, yeah. it wasn't a one-off case; it was like multiple. So, yeah, and it you know and all the other stuff. Um, but the other thing actually, I wanted to before I forget, but I wanted to pick up on was you mentioned the Michelle Stop Eating song or whatever yeah. it was called. <laughs> that is obviously a very like horrible thing to be happening to a child. Did that lead on to anything? You know, I think you mentioned eating disorders. With yeah. the, did that lead on to you then?
1: So that actually started because of a teacher and that teacher was the teacher who commented saying, so proud of you, can't wait to read this, pre-ordered it. Um, I've not heard about from her since, (laughs) but uh, it was because I was walking back from a cookery class and in my school you had compulsory cooking classes and I was holding a chocolate cake, but I was slightly bigger than my friends and I, oh no, it was a Victorian sponge cake because I don't like Victorian sponge, so I wasn't going to eat it. I was walking to the kitchen to leave it. And I remember all of these details because that was the first thought I thought. I was like, but I wasn't going to eat it. And she was walking past and she went, Michelle, stop eating. And like, she was walking past me. So she'd already walked past. So she screamed it like three more times. And I went, but it's not for me. And she was like, Michelle, stop eating. And I was like, but it's for Lucy. And like, she was like, Michelle, stop eating. Um, And the door to the common room had been open and all of the 11 girls in my house and in my year were sitting there. And they like just heard this Michelle Stop Eating down the corridor. So it started becoming this running joke, turned it into a song. Um, and then everyone started singing this song. But it because I was always the biggest one of my friends, I wasn't big, like that's the funny thing, is that if like I posted a picture of my me the day that happened the other day, and like I'm a normal 50 mm. like I don't want to use the word normal, I'm like a size twelve. 15 year old girl, which is healthy. Like, that I mean, again, I don't want to use the he- word healthy. There were no good words to use in this context, but like, I'm not fat. Yeah. And I'm being told, you need to go on a diet. She put me on a diet about a week later. Anytime she saw me with a cookie in my hand, she would literally like publicly embarrass me by like being wow. like, Michelle, you're not allowed to eat that. With like my three friends standing behind me, all with three cookies each. And I've only got one because I'm already so conscious of my weight. But She takes that out of my hand and then, like, my friends are joking, being like, hey, you got no cookies and I've got three kind of thing. And it's, like, the 15-year-old jest and, like, joking about... Of course I laughed along. Of course I was like, oh, it's a funny song. What was I meant to do? Throw mm. a strop and be mm. like... Because then I, my friends would be like, you're being too sensitive. Yeah. And then, then... they would do it even more. Yeah. And like, that was always the thing. So I hated being called Mishy um, instead of Michelle. And So they always call me Mishy. My friends to this day call me Mishy because it started because I hated being called Mishy. So I definitely didn't want the jokes to intensify when it came to my weight and my body. But it became this, like, it started with this, like, ongoing need to diet. Um, and I never went into a full-blown eating disorder. But um, I did go on to, like, um, like bursts of just, like, yo-yo dieting and, like, trying every new diet and never thinking my body was good enough. And always thinking, like, it was my fault that um, I didn't have the same figure as my friend's. Um, And I think it started a lot of really unhealthy habits and uh, relationship and really warped my relationship with food. Um, And just also just around shame around eating. So I was still there. like, it took me a really long time to unlearn, like the shame around eating around people. So um, in uni, we always ate all meals together. And I lost about 30 pounds that year because I couldn't eat in front of people. Um, And so like, Or especially the guys who were like playing rugby and all being like, you're not eating that and like take my plate two seconds later.
0: they like, score. Yeah,
1: and they're like, great, we've got another meal for free. And I was like, in a very unhealthy way, not eating. Um, But simply because I had been shamed for literally walking down the corridor with a slice of cake that I wasn't even gonna eat. Um, And so I think that kind of stuff never really leaves you. Um, And it even comes up, and it's kind of that thing, it comes up in life in weird ways. So like I'd be on a date. um, I went on a date like maybe like five years ago and I remember um he wanted to go to get some burger place afterwards and i in my head was like i can't do this i can't eat a burger yeah. in front of me. like this is the first day i don't want to be eating a burger right now and it's good we've been drinking for so long that we'd like forgot about the time we started yeah. at three and it was like nine o'clock he was like i'm starving let's just go to mcdonald's and get a burger yeah. i'm like i don't want to eat burger <laughs> you." and it's that thing of if i was if i hadn't discovered body positivity i would challenge those thoughts now and i do like absolutely fine eating in front of whoever at the moment, but like it's only because of body positivity mm. that I realized that it was never me, it was actually that I should have never been shamed for it and mm. that I'm allowed to eat no matter what my size mm. is.
0: How how did you go about unlearning that sort of pattern of thinking?
1: Genuinely challenging it because it doesn't again, the mentality doesn't come up all in one day Mm. it's like you're on this day and you're like i don't want to do this and then i'm like oh i don't want to do this means i should do this Mm. like that's how i challenge every single thing and i'm like i'm gonna hate this i'm going to be terrified while i do this and whilst i order a burger and sit there and eat it i remember i got ketchup on face was so embarrassed and he was like and it was really cute because he like wiped it away and he was like he was like oh you got a bit of ketchup it was like a cute moment and i was just mortified and i was like oh my god that's exactly why and now he thinks i'm a slob and you don't change by doing the same thing. And if I just said no to that, and it's a small thing, I said yes to having a burger on a first date, it's not revolutionary. But (laughs) it was to me. And like then just doing that, which is actually quite a big step in fact in terms of I didn't go from not eating in front of anyone to eating in front of my friends. I went to not eating in front of anyone to eating on a first date. Mm. Eating in front of my friends became easy after that because I was like, well, I've already done the first thing, (laughs) So everything in the middle is kind of covered. Um, And it's actually by realizing what's truth and what's just your belief. And the fact that what is true is the fact that you are allowed to eat no matter your size you need to eat today no matter how much you eat today you need to eat tomorrow um and that you're allowed to eat unhealthy food just as much as the next person just because i'm eating a burger in mcdonald's with a guy on a date doesn't necessarily mean i'm eating a burger every single meal even though society will tell you that because i am plus size because i'm fat they'll be like oh well you shouldn't be eating that burger but actually I I' not. I remember logically thinking this at the time. I would not eaten McDonald's in like six months, mm. and I was like, I know that, and I knew that at the time that even if they had that perception, that that isn't the person I want to be dating. Mm. But because you see it from the outside, and especially because like especially online you're like well you should stop eating burgers then i remember i posted a photo maybe two years ago of me eating a burger and they're like well no wonder you're the way you are i'm like i'm not eating a burger yeah. every i don't even like <laughs> it's burgers. not like you're having
0: breakfast lunch and dinner yeah like a one once in a, a month or whatever yeah. and
1: it's also that thing of like girls should only be eating salads on dates yeah. or like girls should only be eating like a smaller portion yeah. and that it's all of this stuff which i'm like that's not true like, this is just your belief. Your belief is that you're going to find it unattractive, like you're going to be found unattractive if you do X, Y, and Z. But none of that is actually true. And I think that's the way we confront it. And I know people want a really fancy answer to this, but actually the true thing is when that fear comes up and your brain is yelling at you to not do it, go do it. Like, mm. if it's not that scary. It's more scary in your brain. Um, and the what the worst case scenario in my head was probably the guy would see me eating a burger and probably run out of the restaurant. Like I genuinely yeah. thought that was a possible reality in my head. Yeah. What actually happened was we ate a burger, like we went home and we had a second date like a week later or whatever. Yeah. Nothing happened. That was, I got a bit of ketchup on my face. That was literally yeah. it. Like what your worst case scenario in your head is, is going to be a hundred times worse to the reality of the situation. And like, he wasn't affected by like, me eating a burger because he's eating the same burger so you just have to fact check your thoughts because you're like wait hold on like how can he judge me for being unhealthy i mean people do and especially when it comes to like sexual situations there's always that double standard but it's like look i'm eating the same meal he suggested it it's fine like we're gonna be fine And like sometimes you just almost have to coach yourself yeah. through the situation and it sounds so silly because it's quite a uh, I don't know, petty, like insecurity, like it's not something that's going to revolutionize your life. But if you do that one thing, then the next time you're scared to wear a mini skirt or a yeah, crop top, exactly. You're like, well, I did that. I managed to eat a burger on a first date, so maybe I can do this. And it adds to it's almost what I mentioned earlier about like using your past experiences to build up your confidence in order to do future things that you also find scary. And it doesn't matter whether your fear is justified or not it's your fears coming from past experiences so like should someone be that scared to eat a burger on a first date no but in the context of my past experiences does it make sense 100 Mm. um and i think people shouldn't be scared about uh confronting those fears just because they seem like they're petty or seem like oh well i shouldn't have this insecurity in the first place it doesn't matter why you have things in it doesn't matter why you have the insecurity. It matters that you confront it, though. That's how you
0: deal with it, yeah, yeah. 100%. And I, feel, I think what you said there is is perfect in terms of, like, challenging it. I was literally, before you arrived, uh, or before I started setting up, was I was writing something about the ego yeah. and challenging your ego and checking it in at the door when it does arise in that kind of situation where your ego's like, you don't want to be eating a burger in front of this person. You go, actually, yeah. hold on, what is wrong with that? You stay there, Mr. Ego, yeah. Mrs. Ego and I'm gonna carry on with my life and you you stay over there. And I think that's so important, is like having that that power and that um, confidence in yourself to challenge what your ego or your thoughts or whatever it is, is are telling you not to do when in fact there's like nothing wrong with it. Yeah, It's just like a worst case scenario kind of thing.
1: And there's no diff, like the main thing is to know the difference between mm. your ego and the rest of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually wrote a caption about it last week because uh, the, I, the two things where my ego really flared up the, and I have a massive ego, I'm a Leo, like it's natural for me to have an ego. But I think there's so much misunderstanding around ego. Yeah. So if I said, I'm a Leo, I'm a big ego. People are like, oh, you take a lot of selfies, you're really vain. Like, no, that's not what it means. Like your ego is there to protect you. And so it flares up when it wants to protect you. So one of the examples I used was, um, I remember my ego kind of had a hissy fit when I... Um, I I was speaking at Scottish Parliament, which is a huge accomplishment. Like, that's a massive thing. When I got the email, I was like, that's so cool. I then went to do a book signing. And for an hour, I sat there and signed two books. And I sat there, like, being embarrassed. And, like, my ego just, like, telling me the worst things in the world. And, like, afterwards when I was thinking about it, and even when I was writing in a caption, I could hear my ego being like, don't write this caption, you're going to embarrass yourself. Why are you telling people this? You don't need to tell people this. Pretend like it didn't happen. But I was like, look, I was speaking at Scottish Parliament, like, that's a great thing. Yeah, exactly. Who cares how... I sold two books. Great. But even but still, like, that's
0: two people who yeah. have read that book that could have gone in to impact their lives yeah. in a positive way, so...
1: And it's also the thing of, I remember the first time I went public speaking, it was my first paid speaking gig. I wasn't even fully qualified as coach, and I got my first paid speaking gig, um, and five people turned up. Mm. And I remember being so mortified and just like, oh, this is so embarrassing. I've charged this person, and five people turned up and then i was like wait hold on <laughs> i did my first paid speaking gig the fact that five people turned up is yeah, like a good exactly. thing at least someone turned up um, and paid for a ticket to see me speak but at the time your ego's like this is embarrassing don't ever do this again and i remember the next public speaking thing i did my ego was like lower your rate you shouldn't be charging for this you don't deserve to charge for this because you only had five people turn up and your ego will tell you that but it's not trying to get you is trying to protect you because they're like well you're going to put yourself out on the ledge again and like risk something then you also are risking yourself getting hurt again and falling flat on your face And i'm trying Mm. to stop you from doing that so i'm telling you to stop public speaking at all (laughs) but if you don't know the difference between those voices you're like okay i'll just stop public speaking and i could have easily done that and i would have never done my ted talk i would have never done any of the amazing public speaking things i've done since but at the time, I remember I genuinely thought that ego voice was real and was mm. like, I really should probably stop public speaking. That's actually embarrassing that I pay, <laughs> like was paid to speak to five people. Yeah.
0: But again, it's five people that you would have hopefully positive, yeah. positively impacted. So it's better than no people. Or If yeah. you didn't do the paid gig, there wouldn't have been any people. So, you know, you, it's again, it's all the perspective and, and looking at actually what's the facts of this situation rather than like, what's my ego or my mind telling me? Yeah. Um, but being conscious of time, um, we, I've got three more questions for okay. you, basically. Um last we'll three quick fire. <laughs> kind of-ish. Depends how quick you answer them, I suppose. But three questions I always ask everyone at the end. Okay. Um, first one is, if we could rewind time and you could uh, go back and speak to a younger version of yourself. So let's yeah. use the 11-year-old version of yourself because yeah. we've spoken about her quite a lot. Um, what three bits of advice would you give her to start doing from that very moment?
1: would start doing? Um, I would actually tell her to stop believing adults. Because I think when you're a child, you automatically think adults are right and you're wrong. Which led to a lot of me not taking opportunities because an adult told me I wasn't good enough. When actually I did think I was good enough before that adult t- told me that. Um, I would also tell her just uh, just because you're not good at something, don't stop doing it. Mm. I stopped doing a lot of sports I absolutely loved, like netball, and um, it was because in our school, the, how the system worked was if you weren't good enough by 15, you actually couldn't play the sport at all. Mm-hmm. Like unless you were in the team, you weren't allowed to play. Wow. Um, and I would have actually told her like, go find an out of school thing to do the things that you love just because you're not good it's like or even like painting I used to love painting but I was really I still am really bad at mm. it um, but do that stuff anyway and it doesn't matter if you're good at it or not yeah. if you enjoy it it's important enough yeah. um, and the third thing I'd probably tell her to do is I mean she, she at 11 years she wasn't doing it but at 15 she was was stop vocalising your negative opinions about mm. your body Um, And that's actually probably the first thing that did start my body positivity was I stopped saying out loud, I think to an extent, you can't control your thoughts. And I think to an extent, your thoughts are recycled uh, words from other people. So I would never tell someone to stop thinking negatively about your body because to an extent you don't have much control around it. But you do have control whether you vocalise that. Mm. And when you vocalise something, it becomes so much more powerful because you spend more time and energy on it. So just stop talking about that aspect of it. Um, And that just because you believe something, it's not necessarily true. And just because you think you're ugly doesn't make it true and doesn't stop your life in any way. Mm. Um, I think I genuinely thought unless I was beautiful I couldn't accomplish anything especially at 11 mm. um, and I, I think my main one of my main memories around 11 was actually leaving hospital and I'd lost so much weight um that I had to buy like my mum had to buy, bring new clothes for me um oh, really? and I'd lost like I, I was like a skeleton basically when I left um and I remember just looking at myself in the mirror being like, I'm never going to be this size again because I knew I hadn't eaten in the last three months. So I, like, and it was almost like every day I would look in the mirror, I'd kind of dread more weight coming on. And I, I thankfully never thought of the option of not eating. Yeah. But um, that was the main thing I was thinking about when I left hospital at 11. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's mad, isn't it? Yeah, man. And, and then you look at again how far you've come through that journey. It's just yeah. it's amazing to see. I mean, think the the thing you said about sport was quite funny. I, I don't know if you saw me laughing because I am a terrible golf player, like awful to like terrible, but I love playing golf. Yeah. So I, like, in, when it's summer, I go out and I play with my dad because he like loves playing. And literally I spend four hours in the trees, chasing the ball, <laughs> like in the sand, like everywhere the ball shouldn't be. But that
1: sounds fun. But it is fun because, yeah. you
0: know, you get to be out in the open, but it's like the fact that I'm rubbish, at it doesn't stop me from doing yeah. it. Um. so it, it was quite funny that you said that because it just made me think of that straight away. Um, yeah. So the second question I had for you is uh, dreamer's disease, obviously the name of the podcast. Yeah. What does the dreamer's disease mean to you?
1: It means the fact that when you start dreaming... And it actually comes true. And so much of, I always like that quote, which is like, uh, so much of what is happening nowadays you would have thought was never, would never be possible. Yeah. And then it happens and you're like, the impossible came true. Wait, hold on. What can I do now? And it's that moment of like, I remember walking away from the first ever meeting with my publishers where I got the book deal and I walked away and I was like, wait, the book I worked on for the last like 10 yeah, years, probably all together. Yeah it's happening wait what can i do now and it's like this moment of um where the world is your oyster nothing can stop you and you've built up so much momentum from all the positivity that's happening in your life that you genuinely believe you're unstoppable and mm. those moments don't laugh because with everything every feeling is like temporary and even happiness is temporary but grabbing hold of that moment and utilizing it to form a uh, not necessarily a plan but goals about like cool let's work on this next yeah. and that excitement when you first like think of something new that you want in your life um and i think that's what it is. is like it's ch- it's almost chasing this like never-ending high but like at the same time um i've tried to like work on like limiting it as a high and trying to extend the enjoyment of it yeah, yeah. um and the process of it rather than just like I think I fell into a bit of a trap last year of like the more, more, more mentality of like, mm. sometimes when you have this, um, almost what I was just talking about in terms of like chasing something and yeah. then it comes true and you're like, Oh my gosh, when you do that so many times. And I, I think for me that was definitely 2017. It was like my life had become unreal and everyone was telling me like, Oh my God, you've gone like viral. And I had gone from having 10,000 followers in one year to 90,000 followers. Mm. And, you can it's not the following, it's the opportunities that yeah, came with yeah. it, and then suddenly like people will recognize me in the street kind of thing. And you have this like euphoric year where you're like, Wow, anything I want, I can have. And then 2018 it's like, same thing, but none of it excited me anymore. Yeah. And it's because it had turned into like more, more, more. What's this isn't week? good What's enough. Like, yeah, yeah, everything had been so impressive, none of it was impressive anymore. Mm. Um, and 2018 was kind of like a humbling year through all of that and then <laughs> went into 2019 being like you know what all that stuff was great I just didn't appreciate a lot of it because it come become so normalized so it's finding that balance of like achieving this stuff is wonderful but only if you enjoy it and I think I finally got to that place in my life where I'm like I am so appreciative of whatever comes my way that that's what drives it and it's not the end goal and I think 2017 was too much about the end goal and the like ticking the box signing a contract like but actually now I just really enjoy the process of things um and hopefully it becomes more of a like lifestyle rather than a bunch of milestones
0: yeah and it's it's really interesting that you said it that way around because I said on a previous episode of the podcast that I find that it's not a journey to a destination yeah the journey is the destination yeah. and that's where the happiness and the joy is rather yeah. than looking forward to the next one because you can never you get to that thing and then it's okay what's the next thing and it like you said it all becomes a bit of a it's like you,
1: destination addiction <laughs> yeah and you
0: lose you lose the the high of it as yeah. a white boy as if you're focused more on the actual journey being the destination this unlimited because the journey always continues yeah um, which is yeah just, I think it's a really interesting way to look at things um, so final question is what does happiness mean to you
1: I think happiness is a really misunderstood concept because a lot of people make it a goal and it's not a goal because a goal requires time whereas like you can literally be happy in a second mm. um, like your dog Ruby <laughs> you walked in the room and I was like happy instantly because I'm a dog person I'm not seeing a dog in maybe like or at least a month and like it's moments like that where i'm like even if you are if you have depression if you're depressed you have split second and sometimes i say to people like it's that split second where you wake up in the morning and you don't remember all your problems yet mm. and like it you are still half asleep, but in that second you're happy hold on to that second and figure out what was in that second and create more of that um but happiness isn't a goal happiness isn't a permanent state it's a temporary state and all we want is more Temporary moments of happiness Than unhappy moments And mm. that will make you overall happy yeah. um, But chasing it as this permanent state is unrealistic yeah. Because you're actually igno- ignoring all your other emotions And I don't like even calling them negative emotions But if you were to call them negative emotions There were five main negative emotions Anger, fear, sadness, guilt and shame And if you ignore all of those you're almost like validating happiness to a higher level when actually you need to process those emotions. You need to have those bad days and slap a In order a pl- to enjoy the happiness. Yeah, and it. like to slap a plaster over it and just like write happiness on the plaster yeah. doesn't make sense because the plaster is going to come off eventually. Yeah. And then it's going to be this outpouring of like, I, I think I'm very like my perception in the world is very... And especially emotions when it comes to happiness is really altered by the fact that I had PTSD. So from all of my surgeries, um, I had PTSD at 21. And it's because I slapped plasters on everywhere and was like, we're not dealing with this. We're gonna be happy, we're gonna be grateful. Cause that's the message I was fed, um, was like, be happy, be grateful you're alive. And that's wonderful, it's great to have a positive mentality. But if what you're doing in order to have that positive mentality is push out every other emotion. I suddenly was in like a psychology lecture and got triggered and it was like nonstop crying for three months. And I was angry, I was sad, I was guilty, I was ashamed. Like everything all at once, because I just not felt any of it. Mm. Um, And whilst all of, all before that point, I thought I was the happiest person in the world it was very superficial happiness because as long as I was busy, I was happy. If I stood still, I couldn't be happy because I was like, I was almost running away from my problems. So like, I was the busiest person you knew before before I had PTSD. Like, I had people didn't understand how, how I could have 50 friends. Like I had 50 like best friends and it's cause I was never alone and I never wanted to be alone. And I was always at someone's house and running around and doing something. And even if it was like, if even if I had nothing to do, I remember I had nothing to do one day in uni. So I decided to go buy a hot chocolate for all of my friends and go buy, like deliver <laughs> them hand deliver them to all of the house. That was the kind of person I was just because I couldn't sit still and actually feel anything. Yeah. Um. And I think sometimes we confuse that as happiness when actually, it's being okay with yourself, it's being at home in your skin, in your body, um, and it's being okay with your own company as well. And that, I think, yeah, is a very long answer. No, <laughs> but,
0: no, it's great because it's. I think it's it's totally true. And what you were saying about feeling the negative emotions and in inverted commas as you said, you have to feel those in order to yeah. be able to feel the other stuff because it coexists. You can't have happiness without the unhappiness like they they are the same thing like you'll be unhappy but then you can also be happy yeah and there's a middle ground and it's like it's all one big thing it's just like different different uh levels across the spectrum kind of thing yeah um which is yeah you know that's just that's life I suppose isn't it the yin with the yang yeah (laughs) um but look I want to thank you for your time uh for, for being so honest with your story and sharing everything and you know all the stuff that's in your book, which I am yet to read, but I will do. And um, It's on my reading list when I next buy a batch of books.
1: Audiobooks are better. I'm uh, an audiobook person. See, I, li- so I like
0: to listen to podcasts, but I like to read. Uh, if it's a book like this, I like to read it. Because
1: uh, um, I, I I only buy books that I like highlighting, and then I audiobook everything yeah. else.
0: Ah, that's interesting, yeah. Well, I scribble in most books. Uh, I just like <laughs> underlining stuff that I like. That's um, a loved book. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for having no me. no worries on. um before we do sign out though do you want to let people know where they can find you online where they can yeah. get the book the audiobook, yeah. where they can find out more about your coaching or anything that you kind of want to talk about
1: so i'm scar not scared and body positive memes on instagram i'm michelle elman on youtube and facebook and twitter scar not scared as well like those are my two usernames and then uh my book you can get on wh smiths uh, waterstones and amazon and then audiobook is audible mm. and that's pretty much it everything else you can find on my website which is michelleelman.com
0: amazing well thank you appreciate the time it's been a great chat and yeah have a great
1: day you too
0: So there we have it, guys. That was Michelle's story. I really, really hope you enjoyed this one. And a big thank you again to Michelle for speaking so openly about her story and what she went through. I honestly, I could have gone on for another hour, to be completely honest with her. There was so much to talk about, and we could have just chatted and chatted and chatted. But I would have been very aware that that would have been a very long episode. But I did love her energy and how she put such a positive spell on even the worst situation. And it definitely puts a lot into perspective for me. And in terms of the small things that I get stressed over, you know, it will make me definitely look at those in a completely different way and how there's so many bigger issues and situations that people are dealing with in their lives. And it's also incredible how she's using her experience to, you know, and her story to really empower others and just sharing that message and and letting people know it's okay, it's fine. Just learn to love yourself and accept yourself. So do make sure you go and get a copy of her book. I'll link it up in the description am I ugly and make sure you do go and connect with Michelle and myself and if you're listening to this right now and you really loved it then take a screenshot of where you're listening to it post it on your Instagram story tag me at I am Alex Mandy. and also if there's someone out there who you think would really really love this episode and really benefit from listening to it then be sure to send them the link. Spread the love. Let's really share those vibes because at the end of the day, we're here to learn and grow together. That is the point of the podcast. We're here to inspire each other. So do make sure you share it with your friends if there's someone out there that you think would love this episode. But until then, I will see you next time. Make sure you go out there and chase your dreams. This podcast is produced by Unedited.